All right, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to our monthly webinar series. My name is Joe Jones, my partner here at Lois Law Firm. I have with me the Karen Vincent uh, from our New Jersey team, who's uh, helping me present today on appeals and reopeners. Little note, Karen's gonna be taking over the webinar series. Uh, you'll be seeing her throughout the next year on every single one of these, and we'll have the New Jersey attorneys rotate through to help her out. Uh, today's topic is appeals and reopeners. Just as a reminder, this is part of our monthly webinar series for New Jersey, which takes place on every fourth Monday of the month. Uh, we also have a New York webinar series, which takes place every third Monday of the month. Uh, there should be on your screen somewhere a little box if you wanna ask questions, you can type those in. Please feel free to type those throughout the entire presentation. Uh, if we have time at the end, we'll answer some of those questions. And if we don't have time to get back to you, we will certainly get back to you by email. Karen and I will both uh, gather those questions up and provide you with answers. So you'll get answers one way or the other, whether it's uh, during the presentation or after. Just as a reminder, uh, if you wanna watch any of our other webinar series uh, that have gone on before, we have on our website uh, an archive of those. You can watch all of them, both in New York and New Jersey. Uh, our website's actually a sort of a good resource if you wanna look into other things as well. Uh, Greg Lowe is my partner, writes the book for New York and New Jersey, uh, sort of a practice guide. Uh, he also does a book in New Jersey for the actual LexisNexis practice guide uh, in terms of uh, that as well. So you can certainly look that up. You can join uh, up for our newsletters that we have, and we have various articles that we write on the website as well. So it's a wealth of information if you wanna in fact look at our website. Okay, today's topic is appeals, reopeners, and we have a couple of different ways we're gonna break that down. We're gonna discuss with you settlement versus an order and what that means. We're gonna discuss, can a petitioner reopen their claim? Uh, can a respondent reopen the claim? What is commutation? And finally, can we appeal a decision? This is almost the end of our yearly series. Uh, so this is definitely like sort of post-trial type stuff that we're discussing. Karen, why don't you tell us about the different settlement types? Thank you, Joe. Okay, there are two types of settlements in workers' compensation court. Under 34-15-20 is a section 20 settlement, and 34-15-22 is an order approving settlement. So first, let's discuss section 20. Section 20 is one of our favorite settlements because what it is is a one lump sum payment with a full and final dismissal of the claim. In those types of settlements, we have issues. It was a denied claim. There's issues of causal relationship, permanency, uh, liability, jurisdiction, any type of issue that arises during the claim, we try to settle the case via Section 20. Uh, obviously, we rely heavily on discovery. We want to know beforehand if the petitioner still works for the employer, whether there's subsequent employers, subsequent accidents, prior accidents, what kind of job they were doing, whether there was medical treatment authorized or unauthorized. Now, the other type of settlement is a Section 22 settlement, and that's an order approving settlement. With that type of settlement, we authorized treatment, we concluded with medical treatment, we got permanency examinations, and really it comes down to what is the value of the case. Right, just question how much. Correct, right. and our permanency evaluator has a low number, they have a high number, we reach a number somewhere, and that settlement is usually couched in terms of a body part percentage. In the statute, based upon the uh, body part percentage, it tells you how many weeks that settlement award is paid out. So under an order approving settlement, you then have two years from the last date of medical treatment and or uh, medical benefit or settlement award to reopen the case. So what's key is it's whatever's last. So if it was the last settlement check, then it would be two years from the date of that last payment. Right, and we add, at the hearings, we actually hear the judge mention to the petitioner, don't forget that two year date, take that last check, put it on your refrigerator, circle that date. They give them all kinds of reminders to sort of tell them 
Correct. Because if they file two years and one day after, we're filing a motion to dismiss as uh, it didn't abide by the statute of limitations. As a respondent's firm, we want to gear everything we can to a section 20. So as you indicated, uh, a lot of the things we do are just trying to get leverage points to try and get us into that section 20 column instead of the section 22 column. Um, Now, the section 20s, there are some judges who will do it. There are some judges who won't. Correct. What do you think about that? Well, and that's why it's good with our type of firm. We have a presence in every jurisdiction in the state of New Jersey for workers' comp. Uh, The years we've been practicing, uh, there's four of us in the department. We know every single judge. We know 99% of the petitioner's attorneys. So when we file an answer to this claim, we know who the attorney is. We know who the judge is. We already know whether this is going to be an easy type of settlement for Section 20 or a more difficult one. We can have an identical case presented in two different courts and have completely different resolutions. We have some judges who firmly believe that when two attorneys reach a settlement and petitioner is on board, that their job really is to just make sure it's a fair amount and to proceed with the settlement. We have other judges who are really looking at every finite detail. They want to know, is there a basis for the Section 20? What is the basis? Is it a strong basis? So, uh, and, and that's normally because on under an order proving settlement, because you have that right to reopen for medical treatment, uh, the judge is really trying to protect the petitioner at that point and make sure he's not just taking money he wants right away. But when we when we file that answer, we're already telling our client, what we think in terms of how difficult it's going to be to proceed. And what's good about that is when the beginning, we also know what kind of discovery we're going to try to reach. So we're going to say, okay, in order to get this set up for Section 20, we need the ISO, we need division search records, we need interrogatories, we need to really delve into the facts of this case and find anything and everything that would set it up for Section 20, except for knee cases, back cases, shoulder injuries, where the petitioner continues to work for the employer under the same insurance policy. The reason being is that if we section 20, that type of settlement, and they reopen the case, we have no, we essentially don't have a credit that we're sitting on if it's an order approving settlement and you you settle for 10% of permanent partial total, you're getting that 10% permanent partial total credit. Right, so it's definitely an inquiry you have to make. Is the person still working there? And I think a common theme we have throughout all these webinars is the discovery phase, the find out everything you can because it gives us leverage in various different ways. And and especially it's needed. Some judges, some hearing points different than others where it's not needed uh, nearly as much. Exactly. Now, if you've been unable to settle your case, either by section 20 or by section 22, you most likely are proceeding to trial at this point. You've done a pretrial memorandum, the green sheet in workers' compensation court. Uh, You're required to put down all kinds of things on that, including the witnesses you're gonna call to trial, the petitioner, the various doctors that you're gonna call and you've now proceeded the trial, you've done the testimony, doctors have testified, you've cross-examined, and it's going to result in a judicial order. The judge is gonna sign an order telling us what they believed, whose whose side of this they believed, whether or not they believe it's appropriately a denied case and therefore there are no benefits, or if in fact there are benefits and what those benefits are, how much the award is and everything else. So that is ultimately um, how it's, you're gonna have an order at the end of a trial with the judge's decision on it. Okay. Now, you've, you've done this, you've settled the case or you've gotten through a trial, it's an accepted case, and now we have reopeners. Tell us now, about those. in the state of New Jersey, there's approximately 34,500 new claim petitions filed. It actually might be a little bit higher by now as well because there's more and more coming through. About 18 to 20% of claims that are settled are ultimately reopened by the petitioner. Uh, this is where from the minute we receive a reopener, we are now 100% on board for a Section 20 settlement. Right. We really want to gear everything. We throw at them 
every discovery re request possible. Reopen our interrogatories, additional uh, ISO and right. division search records. We want to know what the petitioner has been doing from the date of the entry of the original award, what they've been doing from that date forward. Was right, there subsequent traumas? Right. Who are they working for? Do they have a second job? What do they do at home? Everything. Because in this type of situation, what we want to avoid is the petitioner who's able to reopen the claim three, four, five times down the road. So really at this point, a majority of the cases are going to close under Section 20. And even the judges know a lot of these cases that get reopened are merely reopened because they had a right to and the statute of limitations was they're running. Looking, they're looking for a little more money. Correct. They yeah. know that if they reopen the case, they'll get a little bit of money on a Section 20 and they can go away. Right. Um, there's you know, a smaller percentage of cases where there's a legitimate increase uh, or increased need for medical treatment. Like we said, it might have been a knee case where there was surgery and now the knee is getting worse. But again, we don't just jump in and authorize because this isn't like the original accident. We now have a gap of time that we need to fill in and find out and make sure because we frequently come across that the petitioner had a, a subsequent motor vehicle accident or a different employer that they're now doing even more manual labor and we're able to point to another uh, cause. So in New Jersey, if there's an intervening cause or a subsequent accident, that could essentially uh, extinguish our need to provide future medical if we're able to show that the intervening cause is the reason why the petitioner is having increased complaints. Now, sometimes what we do is we send them back to the original authorized doctor who does a causal relationship and need for treatment examination of the petitioner. He gets a full history of the petitioner and he ultimately renders a report whether the petitioner does not need any treatment, which then pushes us back to a section 20. If he does need medical treatment, is it related to the original accident? Were there any subsequent factors that were involved in this increased need for medical treatment? In the rare cases that it all lines up that there is increased treatment, even if it's minimal, we still try the section 20. If there's more substantial treatment, then potentially we look at another order approving settlement increase in disability. Right. And the judges tend to be a little bit more lenient in these, these cases. So we're usually a little bit more successful than your regular uh, first time around uh, with the reopeners and getting a section 20 settlement. So uh, it's definitely the way we're trying to push the case, both on the original and certainly on the reopeners, get those section 20s done. Okay. Commutations. Uh, this is essentially where the petitioner's award is being paid out over time, and the petitioner, for some reason, something going on in his life, uh, wants the award advanced and paid out in a lump sum. Uh, a lot of times, it's nothing as simple as just, hey, I'm going to Atlantic City, I'd like to borrow some more money against the award that I have. Uh, usually, someone's buying a house, or maybe they have medical treatment that's going on that's not related to the claim, and they need money to pay medical bills, but there's some kind of an emergency that comes up in their life, uh, and they want the award, what's called uh, commuted, or, or they file a motion for commutation. Uh, these obviously don't happen with Section 20s because it's paid out in lump sum anyway. So it's your order approving settlements that this occurs with. The petitioner will contact his attorney. The attorney will file a motion for commutation. And uh, usually there's a, several hearings that go on and the judges are very, very reluctant to grant these. They're very strict about when this happens. They really only want to grant these in the, the uh, most strict of circumstances. You had a case, I think, that you just recently had this happen, yes. right? Yeah. So in, the, in this situation, we had a settlement entered, and it was a large settlement, it was 40 total, where about a quarter of the settlement had been paid. And the adjuster started noticing that several of the checks were not being cashed. They were not being cashed, and they were actually going so long that the checks were expiring. So the adjuster contacted me, and I contacted petitioner's attorney. Lo and behold, it turns out the petitioner had actually moved to Mexico and had been trying to cash these checks, but can't because of the different banking systems. Okay. 
uh, after petitioner's attorney spoke at length with his client, it was revealed that the petitioner could not open a banking account that would allow him to cash the checks immediately. Due to different laws and regulations, uh, there, there was a waiting time period to even open the account uh, to be a resident in Mexico. There was the waiting period. Then there was a waiting period that they would hold the check. Then there, would be, there was an additional waiting period to be able to cash the check. So we were looking at a year and a half to two year time frame. So in this situation, you have the petitioner has left the country and they're unable to cash any of their settlement award checks. Seems like easy peasy, we walk into court, we're gonna commute the award. Right. Absolutely not. Judge wanted to know, the judge actually called Mexico and different banks to see <laughs> if there were other banks that would be able to open an account quicker. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, the judge wanted to know what if the petitioner decides to move back to Mexico? What what if the, how's the petitioner gonna get the money back into Mexico? I remember this is the one where you said the judge was concerned that he cashed the check once he got it and just like pile all the money, tape all the money around him and then cross the border. <laughs> just walk across the border, strap the cash. Right. Um, and then the judge was inquisitive. Do you owe money? Do you have a gambling debt? Do you have credit cards? Are there people threatening you? Is it gang related? Is it anything? Do you want to go on a vacation? What is this money for specifically? And the reason being is that there's two major factors you have to consider uh, to commute an award. One, there's a 5% penalty off the award. And who's that to? That is assessed against the petitioner. So they take the entire amount of award that's due and owing and 5% gone, it's reduced out. Then it also accelerates the statute of limitations. I had said it's two years from the date of the last money paid or benefit received. The two years is no longer when you would have gotten the payment, it is now the accelerated payment date. So because you're giving up that two year statute, you're accelerating it so greatly and you're losing that 5%. Right. Judges again are very reluctant and they feel it's their responsibility to make sure, as we had said before, protecting the petitioner against himself. Right. Um, making sure that it's a legitimate reason. I think most of the cases we see that do go forward are people with life-threatening illnesses that they're gonna pass away and they would like to enjoy or have some of this money before they pass. But in this situation, it, um, the case actually got transferred to a supervisory judge who required the petitioner to fly in from Mexico, appear before her so she could question him face-to-face and then we actually had to overnight the check here to give to the petitioner so that he could leave the country right. again. So it, this was probably about a four or five month process just to get just to and get this. This would be one of the extremes where it did get approved. Ultimately. It did ultimately get approved, and the judge and and it's important to know the judge was still reluctant. She wasn't a hundred percent on board, but I think what what she ultimately decided on was the fact that he couldn't cash it, and he was he he had left the the U.S. and he had stated. <laughs> clearly on the record that he had no intention of coming back to the United States. So there would not be a reopener on the claim. And from the respondent's perspective, we like these. I mean, again, they don't happen a lot. They're not approved very often, but we get a discount on the payment and it does push up the statute of limitations. So we rarely object to this when it's happening. Correct. Okay. Okay. That brings us to appeals. Uh, let's talk about final decisions or an order from the judge. That's a, an area where you can definitely appeal. Um, what if we consent to something? Can we appeal if we consent to something? No. Okay, so for example, the section 20 or the section 22 orders, that's a consent. We're We've saying, entered we into agree. a consensual agreement, it's a settlement, right. so there's nothing to appeal at that point. Okay, but um, how does this consent come up sometimes uh, in court when we sign? Sometimes a judge, we've just had a mid-temp motion, the judge slides the order across to us and says, here, sign here. Do we sign those? 
No. So basically, uh, I'm sure a lot of you watch TV where there's lawyers uh, in courtrooms and, you know, they're jumping up very dramatic. I object, I object, I object. Obviously, it's, you know, sometimes done for drama, but there is a real reason that we do this. And that is because the end of a trial or anything that we want to appeal, we can only appeal what we've objected to. If we do not object to uh, a, an admission, a statement, a medical evidence going into proof, then we lose that right to actually object to it because we didn't at the time of trial. So essentially when an order is entered, it's it's almost it almost acts as a written objection. So we've had orders for med and temp where we don't sign the order. And if the judge requires a signature, we might write in the corner, we consent to the form, but not the entry. And, and in fact, judges know this on respondents' attorneys so well, they don't even have the time give us a copy, you know, hand they us the order. Us Petitioner signs it, petitioner's attorney signs it, the judge signs it, and they just hand us a, a copy. They don't even require us for the most part. Same thing with uh, after a trial, we, we will consent to the form, not to the entry of the order, thus preserving our right to appeal it. Right. And back to your point about the uh, making the objection in order to preserve it for the appeal. Uh, the new appeal briefing rules require specifically that you do that. So when we're writing our briefs, and, and again, uh, just to be clear, appeals don't happen a lot in New Jersey. This isn't something that comes up too much as opposed to our New York team. How they're working on appeals all the time. But uh, with the rules, when you file your brief with the court in order to consider uh, the various issues we're raising, the actual heading will be the objection that you made, and it'll reference oftentimes, and I think has to, the uh, transcript section of where you Correct. made that objection. And if you're missing that, they, they might not even consider that issue. So uh, the, the appeals, again, are rare, doesn't happen a lot, but when it comes up, you have to make, when you're doing those trials, make sure you have your objections, make sure you preserve your record, so that if an appeal comes up, you do have those things raised. So if you pull the transcript and you don't have an appeal on that certain issue. What do you mean? Oh, well, then you waive that right. If you, if you, if you didn't make an objection of it, you didn't make a stink about it at the, the lower level, then you're going to have a problem. You can't raise that uh, later on. All right. So to summarize, we've gone over all the different types. Why don't you just give us a quick summary? Okay, so we're looking at this. Section 20 settlement, can we appeal it? No, this was a, an agreed upon, uh, we consented to a settlement. Do Is there a right to reopen? No, that's exactly opposite of why we do a Section 20 settlement. It's a lump sum payment in exchange for a full and final dismissal with prejudice of the case, meaning you can, the petitioner cannot come back. Can you commute it? It would be the same exact thing because it is one lump sum payment, so there's nothing to commute. For a Section 22 settlement, can you appeal it? Again, no, absolutely not, because you entered into a agreed upon uh, settlement. Can you reopen it? Yes. You can reopen it two years from the date of last money or benefit paid to the petitioner. You just have to show that there is a need for additional medical treatment or there's an exaggeration, aggravation, or ex acceleration of the petitioner's condition to warrant an increased permanent disability award. Can you commute the uh, settlement? Yes. And again, we, we couch it with it's extremely, extremely rare. I've been practicing 18 years. I've had three in my career come before me and only two have gone through. Um, lastly, uh, a judgment order. Can you appeal it? Yes. As long as you, uh, had, uh, objections on the record and at the, or, uh, on the order itself, can you reopen it? Yes. If you don't object to the order and you want to paying the amount that the judge finds the petitioner be disabled from, uh, the petitioner has the right similar to an order approving settlement to reopen the case. Uh, can you commute it? Yes. The same situation as section 22 settlement under rare special circumstances, uh, you can file the motion to commute the award. Okay. 
All right, that I think sums up basically the topic for today. Uh, again, there's a place you can put questions. We're gonna check now uh, to see if any questions have come in. If we don't get to your question at this portion, we'll certainly uh, respond to you by email and get back to you that way. Do we have any questions? Yeah, so <clears throat> Maureen asked the question, when we receive reopener petitions, it seems we are never successful with a Section 20 settlement of accepted What are some recommended steps that should be taken to posture the claim for an approval of a Section 20? Would you recommend an IME or activities check or surveillance? And I think the kernel of her question is really that she's saying that when they get reopeners, uh, they are never able to posture them for Section 20. So okay. maybe some basics on that. All right. Well, we definitely posture our cases here for Section 20. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. So you can just send the file our way. Uh, realistically, um, there's a couple of different things you can do. We send out reopener interrogatories with every case which asks a number of different questions. Is the person still working there? Have they had any subsequent accidents? Uh, have they had any anything going on in terms of medical treatment, authorized or unauthorized, since the case was originally settled? Uh, we get updated ISO or match reports so that we see if any other claims have been filed subsequent to the original case. Uh, all of those things, and subpoenaing those records as a result, all of those things build into it uh, factors which will determine whether or not we can gear that towards the Section 20. When it comes to the request for treatment, uh, we, we sometimes we approach the attorney right away and see if we can just section 20 the case. We kind of ignore their request for treatment and say, hey, yeah, but we we've just give you some money in for section 20. Right? We've been pretty successful. Um, and sometimes they're on board with that. But if, if you have a petitioner who's really insistent that they need more treatment, they want to at least see a doctor before they decide that, uh, we'll send them back to the original uh, uh, doctor who treated them in the original case. We'll make sure that they we have the subpoena results and all those other records, if anything's gone on between then and now. Uh, so that they can review that and see if there's any causal uh, relationship with the new complaints that the petitioner has. So. I think it also uh, depends too on the original settlement. I mean, if we're looking at something that was a sprain and strain, we sometimes just jump right to a permanency evaluation. Right. It's really only the bigger claims or the pressing need. Some of these situations where the petitioner really is complaining and they're really pushing that they want increased treatment, then we're gonna get uh, a need for treatment exam right. so that we're not hit with a motion for med and temp. Right. But in some of these situations, petitioner's attorney will just automatically in the template filing the reopener uh, request a need for treatment exam. And then we look at the file, it was a small claim or really wasn't the type of injury that you would reopen, something that may have had a right. scar. There's not really a, a likelihood that there's an increase in disability. So usually one of the first things we do is pick up the phone. Hey, you wanna give me a section 20 money uh, demand. demand? You know, what is your client really looking for? So one of our big things is communication with petitioner's attorney right away. And that again is a situation where we know who the attorney is when we file, when, when we receive uh, the application to modify the prior award, which, which is the reopener claim. And we know certain attorneys, we pick up the phone, we could talk to them and they'll say, yep. look, he really is just looking for an increased award. We make the call and sometimes we could settle these by section 20 very, very quickly. Right. Um, so really it's case by case basis, but when you send claims to us, we're able to respond right away with you know, some sort of time frame and guidelines on how we get it set up for section 20. But I think the key here is Joe and I both agree, we like to push Section 20s on every single reopener claim that comes on our desk. Yeah, reopeners, the original came, claims too. If, if we could Section, section 20, 20 everything, yeah. we could. Right, yes. I go to sleep just reiterating that mantra. I believe the judge has <laughs> called me the Section 20 queen, yeah. so yes. <laughs> Do we have any other uh, questions? Thank you, Maureen, for your question, by the way. I hope that answers it. Okay, so here's an interesting one uh, from Steve. And Steve asks, if a claim was resolved via Section 22, 
the motor grooming settlement. And it was later found out that the injured worker presented fraudulent facts, and presumably to support that settlement that was reached in the order of grooming settlement. Can you ask for the section 22 to be overturned? In other words, can the respondent reopen a case when it's uh, believed there's been fraud in the undertaking? Okay, respondent reopening a case is very rare, but that's one of the exceptions I think you would have. Um, certainly when we enter into a, an agreed upon settlement, a section 20, section 22, uh, it's based upon truthfulness of the facts and everything that went on. If you have a fraud type issue, uh, that is certainly grounds to reopen a case. None of the premises that we agreed upon and that went into that consent are valid uh, for whatever reason, whatever the fraud is. Uh, so that is definitely a way that we can reopen the case, get before a judge, and then present the the, the underlying fraud uh, as a, a deterrence to that 20, Section 22 settlement. So absolutely, if there are fraud issues, you should bring those to counsel's attention. Uh, even if you had a Section 22 that's you're paying out on and the fraud's now found out subsequent, bring that to their attention and there's something we can do. We can certainly try and reopen that claim to, uh, to get the judge, make sure the judge is aware of those fraud issues. And the first thing we do is probably sit down and talk to you because obviously if we're going to file this, we need to be 100% sure that there right, actually is fraud right. uh, to file this because the burden would be on us to prove that. So right. we would need some some sort of uh, surveillance or written documentation right. because at this point, once it is brought before the judge, if there is a finding that there's fraud, we're now looking at also criminal charges and recouping right. any money that was there's paid on the claim. Of, so it really opens up Pandora's sort of a, box. Right, global, global issues that, Correct. that take place. So if it is uh, a thought maybe there's fraud that's not gonna we we actually right. want substantial proof because then once we we open that door we're really going full-fledged ahead of with it and we'd want to be part of that evaluation so if you do have if you're thinking there might be fraud and you have some discovery you have some surveillance or something forward it to counsel let us take have a conversation about that see if it actually is fraud if we think it rely, rises to that level before we go and then try and do that and open up that Pandora's box of things and I would add a subsequent in case you're thinking about it if you think there's fraud as I said, wait for us to guide you through that. Don't stop any payments that are pursuant to the right. order. No, you, um, you, you, the last thing you want to do is get hit with a motion to uh, enforce the order on top of it. So you continue providing because at that point, if fraud is found, we're going to then go after them for all the money paid on the claim. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, that's all we have today. Uh, any other questions that came in? Like I said, Karen and I will get back to you uh, by email. Um, so thank you again. I appreciate your time today. Uh, just as a reminder, we do have uh, this series monthly. Our next month's topic is the Second Injury Fund. Karen, you're going to be presenting with, I think, Chris, Chris Diaz, right? Christopher Diaz okay. will be joining me next month. All right. And that's... Have a good day, everybody. The Thanks again. fourth Monday. Fourth Monday, yes.